All right, Salt City. My name is Jordan, and uh, I missed the memo on the Purdue gear, guys. Uh, they didn't tell me about it. Um, I wanted to, wanted to say thank you to our staff. Uh, they've supported us really well. And you guys as a church have just, you've been excited for just me and I. And we're really thankful for that uh, and grateful. It's been, a, it's been a sweet week in our lives and thankful to have the chance to let you guys in on what's, what God's been doing in us. And, uh, <clears throat> but I haven't left yet, so let's teach the Bible, all right? Exodus 24, if you want to start flipping there, we're going to be looking at a chunk of Exodus. We'll focus in on 24 and 25 to sort of summarize the entire chunk. Um, Here's what a, a lot of today is, is it's essentially a detailed architectural blueprint of the tabernacle, which was the, the temporary uh, temple as the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness. God's going to give them instructions on how to build for him a tabernacle. And if you were to read through this, you'd encounter stuff like what type of wood to make the Ark of the Covenant out of and how many cubits big it should be, and all of these detailed measurements about what the lampstand should look like. Okay, so we've come to our, our first question we got to address before we get into this is, what do you, I mean, what do you do with that? This is one of those sections in the Bible reading plan that you're tempted to just kind of like flip past it, keep moving. What does this have to do with our lives today? The measurements of the tabernacle, how does that relate to life at Salt City 2022? So, let me give you a couple reasons why I think you should pay attention to this text before we get into it. One is, essentially, all of it is symbolic. <clears throat> Western minds don't typically do too well with symbolism. We tend to be uh, highly rationalistic and highly literal, which has its strengths, but it also has its weaknesses. Hebrew literature communicates truth through symbolism and artistry and illusions. And so there can be this tendency to, to sort of miss each other on this. And so when we read uh, sections like this, we tend to uh, hear about the descriptions of how to construct the entrance to the tabernacle, and we just go, okay, it's, it's just literally an architectural blueprint, the end. But when we read it like that, we'll tend to miss things like how the east-facing entrance of the tabernacle was guarded by cherubim, and how there's allusions in how the tabernacle is constructed and the elements inside of it that point to the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, and how this entire section is about how God wants to come and dwell with his people. And when you combine all of those things, here's what you realize is this entire structure is symbolic of Eden which means that this text is about paradise. What it means to live life in the presence of God, the type of life we were designed to live, it's about paradise and how we lost it and what it would look like to regain it in him. In other words, it's at the very center of what it means to live life well and the questions that we're all asking. The second reason to pay attention to this text is that we can learn about some of the major themes of the Bible, themes that are central to your life, things like atonement and forgiveness, things like the presence of God, the, the holiness of God, the, the nearness of God and how that relates to his holiness, things like the mediator who can enter the presence of God on our behalf, the mediator between God and man. And so that's why we should listen into 
what he has to say in Exodus. So let me just remind you where we're at in the story. So in Exodus 19, God came to his people and said, I I want you to be a people for my own possession. I want to have relationship with you. I want to be able to look at you and say, you're mine. And for you to be able to say the same thing back to me. And so then he goes on to describe what it would look like, like Isaac mentioned, to live in covenantal relationship with God. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's a description of what life in the kingdom of God would be like. And then he unpacks the implications of that for several chapters. He applies them to all of society. And then we get to Exodus 24, where God essentially looks at his people and says, are you in? This is what life with me would look like. Do you, do you want to participate in this with me? I want to have relationship with you. Do you want to have relationship with me? And the people look back at God and say, we're, we're in. We will obey. We want to be a part of this covenant. And then immediately after some of these covenant ceremonies to to ratify this relationship, God gives his people an invitation up into his presence that is unique. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. So God has been dwelling up on Mount Sinai and the people have been told that they can't go up to God, but now he gives the leaders an invitation up into his presence and they walk up the mountain and they have this this encounter with God. It says, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the heaven for clearness. Whenever people encounter God in the Bible, they use It's like they're scratching and clawing for words to describe the beauty and grandeur of what it's like to be in the presence of God. And all they can do is say that things were like this, they were like that. You see that in Ezekiel, you see it in Revelation. They're just clawing for words to try and describe the beauty of God's presence. And so it was like the heaven for clearness. It was like sapphire stone being in the presence of God. Verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. They have this this covenant meal in the presence of God. So God responds to this this covenant, this relationship making with his people with an invitation further in. Covenant and then invitation into his presence. And I want you to pay attention to verse 11, the very end of it. It says, they beheld God. And from what we know of the rest of Scripture, here's what you would expect after that comma is for it to say, they beheld God and died. Because that's what they've been told would happen if they enter the presence of God. God's too holy and they're too sinful. They're not allowed in there in his near presence. And so that's what you would expect. But instead, they get this covenant meal with God. God welcomes them into his presence the same way you would welcome a friend into your home. By offering them a meal. Saying, you're welcome here. I want to spend time with you. And this is teaching us about the benefit of entering into covenant relationship with God. So traditionally when evangelicals, when we've talked about relationship with God, we've talked about the gospel or entering Christianity as something like this, that if you believe that Jesus exists, then you'll be able to go to heaven when you die. Now that's absolutely true, 
but it's also a gross oversimplification of what it means to know God. Because it makes it sound like God is a means to some other ends. That you use God in this, this abstract faith in him, this intellectual ascent towards faith in him, to gain something else that you are after. To gain heaven or, or holiness or forgiveness or something else. But what this is saying is that God himself is the reward of Christianity. The longing of your heart for something more that has drawn some of you here today, that it's drawn you into Christian community, is not something that you use God to gain access to something else, but it's God himself, your maker, your creator, that you were meant to have relationship with him. He's the best thing about life. Life in the presence of God is the pinnacle of human existence. Have you experienced it? Do you know what it's like to taste and see that the Lord is good? Like Psalm 19 says, for him to be sweet like honey to you. Or has Christianity just been this thing for you that you, you know you should do, but you haven't experienced what it's like to dwell with God? Or for some of you that have been around Christianity for a long time, has this gotten normal to you? The God who made everything, who rules everything, who holds you in his hand, the God who you owe your next breath to, that he wants relationship with you, that he wants to live with you and dwell with you, that he's invited you into his presence and made a way for you to access him whenever you want to. Is that, does that feel normal? Because it's the most miraculous thing about life. It's the most unbelievable reality that you can know God and that you can live life with him. Do you see the miracle that it is that God has invited you in, that he hasn't rejected you, that he wants to know you and to look at you and say, you're mine, and for you to be able to look back at him and say the same. And God here has invited them up into his presence, but he isn't satisfied with this temporary encounter with a few of the leaders of Israel. He wants the entire people. And he knows they can't all come up to him, and so he'll come down to them. God incarnates. And he looks at his people and he says, I want you to build for me a tabernacle so that I can come and dwell among you. God knows that his people live in these nomadic tents, and so God says, I want to come live in a tent too. I want to be near to you. And it was designed so that the tabernacle would be in the very center of the camp of Israel so that, that he would be the very center, the very focal point of life. He says, I want to come down to be with you. And he invites them to bring offerings to him to help create that tabernacle. It's his initiation, his action to come get his people, but he wants them to be able to participate in love, to respond in love towards his initiating action. In Exodus 25, 2, he says this, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. 
So he says, Israel, I want you to, to bring gifts to me so we can build this tabernacle. And they bring gold and bronze and silver and they bring animal skins and fabrics and oil and all these things to build the tabernacle. But notice his wording. He's not demanding this gift from them, but he's offering it to them. He says, if your heart stirs, if your heart moves, if you're moved by my love, then I would love for you to respond to it in an act of love back to me. And Israel responds. And they bring their stuff and they lay it at the feet of their king and they say, we want relationship with you. We just got to do this as a church. We have this new building that God has given us that we believe as a church will be this place of worship in the Twin Cities for generations to come where God will be glorified, where his gospel will be declared and will go out into the city. And we believe that God has asked us to participate in that with him. And so we ask you as a church, hey, if your heart stirs you, do you want to be a part of this? And you responded. I still don't know how we hit the numbers that we hit to make that happen. We're still a young church. But God did it. Because you heard an invitation from him and you guys responded and you offered up gifts to him and he was honored in that in your free will offering to him. And one of the questions you ask of this text is, is where did Israel, their, their nomadic wanderers, how do they have gold and silver and riches to offer God? And the answer is they got it from Egypt. When God freed them from slavery, he sent them out with riches, and so it was his anyway, and all they're doing is turning around and giving back to him what he had given them. And we're the same. Everything we own, it's on loan from God, it's his. He offered it to us, and so when we give back to him, we just offer it and say, hey God, this is yours anyway. We just want to offer it back to you, and in in his kindness, he considers that an act of worship, even though it's his anyway. And so after they give this offering, he gives them detailed instructions about how to build the tabernacle, and it is detailed. I mean, read that thing. There, it's, it's kind of unbelievable how in the weeds God gets about what this will look like. But I think that's actually a reflection of the heart of God. So I, uh, I listened to a podcast this week all about pizza. Just the whole thing was about pizza. My podcast uh, feed is a little eclectic. Podcasts on pizza, golf, and then the Trinity, just right next to each other, just depends on like what vibe I'm feeling. So I got super into this podcast on pizza, and this guy, they interviewed this guy who apparently makes some of the best pizza in the world, and he has a 60-point rubric on how to make pizza. How are there 60 things involved in pizza? I don't know. It's a very simple thing, but apparently he's got a 60-point rubric. They do tomato tastings multiple times a year where they grade out the acidity to to sweetness of a tomato to make sure it's the perfect tomato for this pizza. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, do you want to listen to a podcast on a 60-point rubric about how to make pizza? My guess is you'd say, no, that sounds horrible. But it was actually deeply fascinating. I loved it. I might listen to it again. I'm all about pizza now. Because I heard a person who is passionate about pizza express it in the level of care and detail that he put into making it. The detail was an expression of the the care for the thing that he loved. The amount of detail that God puts into the tabernacle is an expression of his care for his own glory and for his people. He loves his glory and he loves his people. And so he cares about how his people worship him. So let's dig into this a little bit. First, the ark. 
So I want to talk about the, the Ark of the Covenant. I'll read to you in a second, in a second Exodus 25, but I think we've got a photo, uh, like a replication of the Ark. So a fairly simple idea. It was essentially this wooden box overlaid with gold that contained primarily the law of God. So God has just given the Israelites uh, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And the Ark of Covenant contained the law of God and it was at the very centerpiece of the tabernacle. It was in the Holy of Holies. And here's what this was communicating is the law, which represents the character of God, is the focal point of worship of God. That, yeah, you offer him sacrifices, and we'll talk about that in a second, but you don't just sort of arbitrarily worship God however you want, but your life itself is a worship offering to God by living in accordance with his law and by knowing who he is, knowing his character and responding to him in worship. And on top of the ark there, you can see these, these heavenly beings that were facing one another and it was essentially underneath the wings of those cherubim and essentially that gap right above the ark where God concentrated his presence. So God is everywhere, but he's uniquely here in this mysterious way so that uh, if someone were to come in there, they would see the concentrated presence of God. That's where he would meet with Moses or the high priest. And this here symbolized the throne room. So it was entirely surrounded by these curtains that um, were royal colors symbolizing the throne of God. It's like the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God's throne. This is where he would sit down to rule over the earth. God himself came down to live here. But it describes a little bit further what they should put on top of the ark, something called the mercy seat. So let's look at Exodus 25, 21, and 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I have given you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God <clears throat> says you need to put a covering over his law called the mercy seat. And it was called the mercy seat because it was here that the, the priests on the Day of Atonement would, would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice onto the mercy seat. And so here's what this is saying, is that if you're going to come into the very near presence of God, if you're going to try and stand on his laws and commands, you need the sacrificial blood in order to provide mercy. And that the way into the very near presence of God is only through a sacrifice but that God desires to offer his people mercy. The mercy in the blood is a covering over the law. Next thing we see in the temple is the table. The description is found in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. It was a simple table in the holy place that had two stacks of bread. Uh, there were six pieces of bread in each stack, and this was symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And what this was saying is that God will be the sustaining influence for Israel. Like he dropped manna from heaven to provide for the Israelites, God himself will always provide what his people need. 
The table was also within the light of the lampstands. The lampstands symbolized the glory and the radiance of God, and that light would fall on those six pieces or 12 pieces of bread, symbolizing that the glory of God was continuously lighting up Israel, and it was reflecting back His glory to Him. We also have the lampstands. Exodus 25, verse 32. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstands out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms. Here we have incredible imagery of Eden. Did you notice how it's using the word branches to, and you can, you can throw up the, the photo of the lamp, how it's using, it's a very simple lampstand, but it looks almost like a tree. And it's using the word branches to communicate something. And it says that the cups look like uh, a blooming almond tree because it was designed to remind Israel of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. To remind them of what life was like when they were in the near presence of God and what life is supposed to be like. To remind them that there was once a day when God walked with his people in the cool of the day. And there was no letdowns. And things were the way that they were supposed to be. And heaven and earth were not separate things. It wasn't that heaven was over here and earth was over here, but it was just heaven and earth. They were one thing. Because God was on earth walking around with his people and they enjoyed the goodness of his presence and life with him. And here in the temple, in the tabernacle, Eden returns. Heaven and earth meet in this little tent in the wilderness. And God is with his people again. And inside of this little house, the world is the way that it should be. It's a world where worship and goodness and holiness reigns. And it's here that the people can come back to Eden to access God, to live in his presence again. But for all of the imagery of Eden, there's also imagery of separation and death. There was a curtain dividing the Holy of Holies that no one could walk into the near presence of God. The people themselves were excluded from the presence of God. They needed to stay on the outside and just hope to get a little glance into the presence of God. There was animal sacrifices happening constantly in the temple, symbolizing the, the death and destruction of sin. And so there's this dance between the holiness of God and his desire to come near. And there's some apparent tension there between his holiness and his nearness. In other words, there's still separation. Even after all of that, even after God coming down off of the mountain to live in the middle of his people, we still can't get to him. And some of us feel the remnants of that separation. We know in theory that God wants relationship with us, but we feel this distance. We feel like he doesn't hear our prayers. We feel like we're not really forgiven. But God wanted to continue to pursue us through that separation. He wanted to come even nearer to us. And not only did we need a God to come close to us, we needed a God to become one of us. That's how close we needed him to be. And so throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites have the tabernacle and eventually the temple, but it's never Eden. Eden never returns. And so then towards the, the opening pages of the New Testament, we get the words of John 1, that the word God himself became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word dwelling means tabernacle. God came and he tabernacled among us. 
It wasn't just that he was near us, but he was one of us. He became a human being, put on human skin so that he could become closer to us. And he came and he established a new fellowship meal with us. If the Israelites ate a fellowship meal in the presence of God on the mountain, Jesus came down to earth and he established the new covenant in communion. And he said, it's my body broken for you that's the way into the near presence of God. It's my blood shed for you that can offer a a new way in. And it's by his blood that we can receive a welcome into the presence of God and we can come in. He invites us in. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar so that we could receive mercy. He was the mediator that could go into the very near presence of God and advocate for us. He was the great high priest who entered the holy of holies on our behalf. Jesus' body was torn so that the curtain that separated us from God could be torn and the holy of holies could spread out to God's people forever. He's the bread of life providing nourishment for his people. Everything we'll ever need in him for eternity. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. He is the tabernacle where earth and heaven come together. And if we stop there, it'd be the best news any of us had ever heard. But there's still more. God just keeps coming closer and offering us more good news. He's pursuing us. There's still more. Just as the disciples were getting their heads around the fact that Jesus himself was the new temple of God, they gathered together in a room to pray. And at Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell down on ordinary sinful human beings. What was known by them as the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud, the near presence of God that was reserved only for the Holy of Holies in the temple, now fell on an ordinary prayer gathering. See, if you read the imagery of Pentecost, of the glory cloud falling, of fire coming from heaven, it reminds you of other biblical imagery. When, God in, or when Moses encountered God for the first time, it was in a burning bush. When God came down on Mount Sinai earlier in Exodus, it was in fire and lightning. When God comes down at the end of the book of Exodus, the glory cloud falls on the tabernacle, but the people can't come into his presence. And then ultimately, when Solomon builds a temple for God, the pinnacle of Israelite history, this is what happens, 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So the fire comes down from heaven and the glory cloud fills up the temple. But then listen to what happens. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The glory of the Lord was excluding the people because they weren't holy enough to come in. But now at Pentecost, the glory cloud of God, the fire from heaven, falls on very sinful, very normal people because now in Christ, we are the new tabernacle. We are the new temple in him. We are the new place where God lives. It's not just that Jesus is the temple, you're the temple. God just keeps coming closer. God living in a tent inside of their camp would have been wonderful to an Israelite. God coming to earth as a man would have been staggering to an Israelite. God living inside of a human being 
dwelling not beside us but in us would have seemed impossible to them. But God is the God of the impossible. It happened. Now, now I know this sermon has been a little technical, a little abstract, a little theological. Some of you like that. Some of you might not. But please listen, and I want to talk to you about the dignity that you have as a Christian. In Christ, you walk into the presence of God, and you expect not wrath but mercy. In Christ, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. In Christ, you are the light of the world. In Christ, you are the place where heaven and earth meet. Because of the Spirit of God living in you, you are the holiest place on earth. You are the place where God comes to live. And Ephesians says he'll seal you by his Spirit. He'll never leave you. His Spirit will live in you forever. Now, some of the the art of Christianity is learning how to notice, enjoy, and enjoy the fact that God dwells in you. That is true regardless of if you feel it or experience it. But there's an art to learning how to enjoy the fact that God now dwells in you as his new temple. When I I sermon prep, I go to uh, this, this little cafe in a park and I like pound things out. And then when I get tired, I go on a walk around this lake and through this forest. And so I was doing that this week, and then I saw this sign that I hadn't noticed before, so I went over to read the sign, <laughs> and it was titled, Forest Bathing, which I don't know, I had never heard about that. I talked to somebody after the first service that is a forest bather and has a book on it, so I'm going to have to learn more about this. But I, I, I'm reading what forest bathing is, which is essentially like walking around in creation and enjoying it. So from a Christian perspective, it's Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And so... I read this little sign, and it essentially said, to start forest bathing, here's what you do. You, you just slow way down. You walk through this certain segment of a forest for like 20 minutes, like crazy slow, and you just notice things and you enjoy them. The end. And I was like, all right, I can funnel this through the Christian perspective. I can forest bathe and worship God. And I was kind of tired anyway, so I'm like, all right, I'm going to try this. And so I, I walked around this little segment of the forest, and I like picked a dandelion, and I started counting the number of petals on it, and people were walking past, and it was super socially awkward, but it was fine, and so I'm like counting these, these petals, and I got to 85 and gave up, because there were so many more, I was losing track, so I start wandering around through this forest that I'd been walking through, and all of a sudden, by simply slowing down and paying attention, I'm exposed to this like wonder and beauty that I had been missing the whole time. And it was genuinely, it was amazing. It was a worshipful experience. So I think Christianity is a lot like that. That a lot of what Christianity is, is learning to slow down and to notice God with you and to simply enjoy it. To slow down. Are you slowing down enough to simply be in the presence of God? To to listen to him talk to you through his word and to talk back to him in prayer. It's like, oh, the old read your Bible and pray application again. We've heard this one before, totally. But you remember growing up in sports, your coaches would tell you, hey, back to the fundamentals is because it's really important. The heartbeat of following Jesus is get into the quiet and the slow with him and listen for his voice, be with him. And then learn to notice God. 
I think sometimes we function out of an old covenant perspective about the, the presence of God. Here's what I mean is the Israelites would come to the tabernacle to offer up their worship and then they would leave to go on with their life and then they would have to come back to the tabernacle. But Jesus says in John 4 to the woman at the well that the day is coming when they'll no longer need to worship on this mountain or that, but they'll worship in spirit and in truth. Meaning they will become the new tabernacle and worship will happen in them. Which this is what that means. You have access to God all the time. If you've trusted in Jesus, literally any moment of your life can become enchanted with the presence of God. That you can choose at any moment of the day to engage with him, to notice him, to see his beauty, to wonder at the glory that is being in the presence of God. The presence of God is fullness of joy. That you'll live in forever and you can start living there now. Are you paying attention? God reveals himself primarily through his word, but he also reveals himself secondarily through subjective things like your community and the things that are happening in your life and your prayers and your instincts as you try to pay attention to him. God wants to talk to you in just your average life. Have you lost the wonder of knowing God himself and living in his presence? Notice him. One simple way I try and do that is something called a breath prayer which is where when you breathe in, you start to breathe slowly, and when you breathe in, you just say something simple like, Lord Jesus Christ, and then as you breathe out, you say, have mercy on me. Something like that. And then you just pray it over and over again until you're experiencing the reality that God is with you. Are you looking to hear his voice? Do you even expect that, or have you given up on that? God is with you. You can live with him. Now, even though that is amazing, that you can hear God and live and dwell in his presence and enjoy it now, the reality is you still have to put effort into noticing his presence, which feels messed up, that it's that hard. And it's because it is messed up. Even though we have access to the Spirit, this still is not Eden, because there's still even more that God has to come for us. There's still more than even what we have now. Is that God wants to bring Eden to here. And he wants to rejoin heaven and earth. That's what God will do forever when he returns. Is heaven and earth will become heaven and earth. It'll be one thing where God lives with us and the entire earth becomes his tabernacle. The place for his worship and glory. And we will live with him there forever. And in this life... We don't fully experience that, but we get to participate in trying to bring that presence of God out to this world that so desperately needs it. As a Christian, we not only get to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but we get to be a part of the answer to that prayer. We get to start to build heaven by the power of the Spirit here and now, the kingdom of Jesus on earth. Now, when I say build that, let me clarify what I mean. I don't mean that we're kind of creating heaven or the kingdom of God in the same way that God is. I mean, we get to participate with God as he, do, as he does that. It's kind of like if a dad were to invite his kid to build a house with him. And let's say that kid's three years old. He's out there with a plastic hammer, just kind of hitting stuff, mucking things up, probably making it worse but he still gets to be with his dad. 
And at the end of the day, his dad has built a house that they'll live in forever. We're just out there with our little plastic hammers trying to bring heaven to earth. And we don't know how to do it. But we still get to be with our dad by his spirit. And at the end of the day, God will build a house that he wants to live in with us forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for that reality that you want to come and live with us, that you want to be with us, you want relationship with us. Lord, we don't, we don't belong in the Holy of Holies. We don't belong in your very near presence. But Jesus, thank you that you went in and you shed your blood so that we could have mercy. You've given us access to your presence that we never could have had on our own. And God, we, we declare in faith that living with you, you dwelling with us, and us dwelling in you is the best thing about life. And we want to live life noticing you, enjoying you, experiencing you. Teach us how. God, we thank you that you're with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.